everyone, it's Leslie here. It's just me and uh, yeah, because Mark has unfortunately lost his voice and partially he's now deaf. I don't know what he's been up to over the Christmas holidays. I thought we were going to just have a nice break and then come back for the new year for a new episode. But unfortunately that's not to be, so you'll just have to console yourself with myself And I'm just going to read out some true stories behind 17 terrifying horror movies. Because a lot of horror movies have been inspired by real life events. Um, And in a lot of cases, the real life events are actually much, much more horrific than the movies. In my opinion, some of them are much worse. Yeah. So this is from sci-fi website um i'm assuming that's a sci-fi channel um or a sci-fi magazine maybe i used to watch a lot of mystery science theater 3000 on the sci-fi channel back in the day if any of you guys remember that it was some a laugh i loved it the robots and either joel or mike and they would just sit and you would just see the silhouette of them and, and sitting in the cinema and they would just take the piss out of really shitty b-movies so it was just so bizarre you still love it um and then he brought it back on a kickstarter for netflix and a more modern version of it which was all right actually some of it was really funny but i do prefer the original anyway let's move on so let's start with psycho so psycho is a really famous film made in 1960 by the great british director alfred hitchcock It is based on the serial killer Ed Gein. Now, Ed Gein was an absolute nut job. He was from Wisconsin, USA, and he was convicted of murder in the 1950s, but is suspected of having a much higher body count. On top of being a killer, Gein was an amateur grave robber prone to making unique home decor, including a lampshade composed of human skin from a person's face. Now, interestingly enough, Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs is also, I think, based on Ed Gein because Ed Gein killed, I believe he killed his mother and then made a skin suit like Buffalo Bill did. (laughs) He did definitely make, like, I think he had like a belt made out of women's nipples and stuff. He was absolute nutty, nutty man. And yeah, he did dig graves. He had problems with his mother. A lot of serial killers have problems with their mum. I mean, I guess your mum and dad fuck you up in ways. I mean, some people's parents might be lovely, but a lot of them do mess with you. But I don't think we all become serial killers as a result of it. Well, some of us would probably feel like killing someone. Um, we don't actually go through with it. So anyway, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, and his mother issues, because again, he has mother issues too, he sort of makes a skin suit out of his mum, I guess. Spoilers, I mean, it is an old film, so fuck it. He acts like his mum, he dresses up as his mum, so there's a bit of transvestitism there, but is he actually just becoming his mum? He thinks he is her. Well, but while he keeps her actual body mummified in the cellar, and he acts out his mother's disapproval, I guess, whenever he has like any women round. His mum's like, not your mine, you can't have anyone else in here, won't have it. And so he'll just go and act out his mother's impulses and basically nagging him to kill. So that is Psycho, based on the um, serial killer Ed Gain. And um, also, 
I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, again, because they're a cannibal family. I think, well, maybe based on... No, that's the Hills of Eyes. So, yeah, Leatherface is definitely based on it again as well, because, again, he's, like, taken... And it's a woman as well. Like, it's a woman's face. I'm sure he's, like, a tranny, because he's got, like, tits, I think. I think he's got, like, leather breasts. I'm sure he does. Or he wears makeup. Um, But, yeah, his face is basically made from a lady's face and hair. Um, which I didn't know until recently. But yeah, again, that's related to Ed Gain. So a second one, which is another one from Alfred Hitchcock, and one that personally terrified me, like genuinely made me fear flocks of birds. Okay, I've given it away. It's The Birds, which was made in 1963, or released in 1963. And it's the tale of a small town struggling to survive an invasion of violent birds. And it is actually based on an event that occurred in a sleepy part of Santa Cruz, California. The Birds novella, which was written by Daphne du Maurier and Hitchcock's film, owe their origins to a 1961 event that briefly upended life in Santa Cruz, California. A local newspaper there documented a rare attack by a massive flock of seabirds. Oh my god, seabirds. Like seagulls and like... If you go to the beach, like where I live in Scotland, if you go to like Troon or places like that, I think it's air. They're notoriously bad for dive bombing and taking your chips out your hands. Like chips as in like fries for Americans. But yeah, if you get like fish and chips or anything, you're like a sausage roll from Greg's or something, they'll dive bomb and take it out your fucking hand. It's never really happened to me, I don't think. A swan got up on my grill once. Yeah, that was scary. I went to Luss. And I had bread and I was going to feed the swans, but they fucking ganged up on me. They were all like right up in my face. They backed me up into a wall. And swans, like adult swans up close, are really quite scary. They're they're quite intimidating fuckers. Like, yeah, so I, I didn't know what to do because they were all trying to get the bread out of my hand. Like, they ganged up on me. Anyway, back to birds. I mean, birds are quite scary if they all flock together and and technically decided to attack us but I mean some people think that birds aren't real that's another myth that we could get into it's a conspiracy theory thing. What happened in Santa Cruz? There was a rare attack by a massive flock of seabirds. They littered the streets and front lawns after colliding with buildings and swarming citizens. The story goes that three days after reading the newspaper's article Alfred Hitchcock phoned the paper to tell them that he would be using the piece as research for the terror he was about to inflict on Bodega Bay, a real town north of Santa Cruz that luckily hasn't actually been attacked by avians. And also in the film, he genuinely terrorised his actress, Tippi Hedren, not only like sexually harassing her um, to the point of obsession, but because maybe she didn't really, wasn't really interested in him, I think he fucking tortured her by tying actual birds to her dress in the scene in the birds where like hunters birds just come out of nowhere or into a house and attack her and there were real birds attached to her pecking at her and stuff i mean tippy hedron is the mother of melanie griffith and she was in a documentary where she had like she lived with like all these big cats like lions and tigers and stuff and melanie griffith got mauled by one of the tigers and for quite a lot of people got attacked which i mean it's mental in itself so she is one strange lady's too when it comes to animals. And we get to The Exorcist. 
Arguably one of the most terrifying horror films ever made, The Exorcist becomes even scarier when you consider it's a story about a young Washington DC girl possessed by a demon is closer to the truth than fiction. William Peter Blatty, who wrote both the Oscar-winning screenplay and the best-selling 1971 novel, was first inspired by the 1949 real-life exorcism of a 14-year-old boy. A student at Georgetown University at the time, Blatty became fascinated with a Washington Post article headlined Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip. Decades later, author Thomas B. Allen wrote about the true story in the 1993 book titled Possessed, The True Story of an Exorcism. According to Allen, the young boy in the case plays with an Ouija board, much like Reagan does in The Exorcist. And she communicates with someone called Captain Howdy. Ultimately, two priests, like in the film, performed the rite of exorcism some 20 to 30 times to save the boy from the demonic infestation. Mm, see, I don't really think that exorcisms are any good because, like, okay, I'm biased because I'm an atheist, but I think it actually does a lot more harm than good, which happened in the case of uh, the film that inspired, I think, the exorcism of Emily Rose, because there was genuinely, like, a woman who got put under exorcism rights to the point where it was it went on and on and on to the point where she was dehydrated and starved and she just died of epileptic fits. I think that most of the time when people claim they're possessed or like even going back, I don't know, before the 20th century, before the 19th century, people didn't understand epilepsy. So they tended to think that you were, because you, you go in fits and stuff, it looks like you're being possessed by demons and then the only way to get rid of it is via the rites of exorcism through the Catholic Church or whatever. I mean, I just don't buy it. But anyway, I, I do love The Exorcist, the film. It is, it is really creepy. Maybe a bit dated now, I don't know. But some weird things, like I've said in previous podcasts, has happened when I've watched that movie. And there's a recent one with Russell Crowe, who's partly based on a real priest who is like the Pope's, the Pope's exorcist. But I don't know how Pope Francis, like, I don't think he really... I don't think he really believes in exorcism. He's quite a progressive pope, so I'd like to think that he just sort of, like, stops all that shit. Because it does more harm than good. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like I mentioned earlier, it is another film loosely based on the life and crimes of killer Ed Gain. Toby Hooper's landmark horror film capitalised on Gain's notorious exploits to help create one of the genre's most iconic and terrifying figures, Leatherface. Wearing a mask of raw human skin, similar to one worn by Gain's lamps at home. Again, he did actually have a suit made of a woman's skin. Leatherface was front and centre on the film's marketing campaign. I'm thinking, I'm sure he had a bowl. He made bowls made out of human skulls as well. As was Based on True Events moniker that was employed to attract a wider audience. So the Based on True Events thing, that predates the Blair Witch Project because they claimed that that was like found footage and people, some people thought it was real. So that's interesting because I didn't know that they were trying to claim that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was based on true events. I guess in a way it is because it is inspired by like Ed Gaines, not like nuttiness, but he, he didn't live with a bunch of cannibals. The plot is entirely fictional. Despite the famous tagline, it's no less terrifying that certain story details can be pegged to real life horrors. I would I would argue that Ed Gain is like more horrific than the people in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But anyway, then we have Jaws. Jaws upsets me because it really shits on sharks because sharks aren't that bad. And I don't, okay, they do attack people, but it's their domain, it's the sea. Like, people shouldn't go in the ocean and bother the poor sharks. Like, it's not their fault. That's where they live. They feed off the thing. In fact, they don't really, 
they don't really go for humans, I don't think. I mean, if they just see some legs, like, splashing about, of course they're going to have, like, a little curious bite. And when Mark's back in the podcast, hopefully this Saturday when we record, I've got an absolute doozy of a story um, involving sharks, which is fucking horrible. But to be fair to the sharks, they're just doing what nature, what the, like nature intended really, what their their instinct is. Like they're just being sharks. So I can't really call sharks murderers, but anyway, it is probably horrific. Jaws, made in 1975, and it was based on a novel by Peter Benchley. The novel was also called Jaws. Steven Spielberg was the director. I think it was one of his first big blockbusters that really put him on the map in Hollywood. It's based in part on a true story, but not the one they're thinking of. The film, about a great white shark terrorising a New England beach town, owes most of its game-changing legacy not to the 1916 shark attack on the Jersey Shore that is mostly associated with it, but rather a more obscure incident from 1964, In the introduction to his book, Benchley reveals that he came up with Jaws upon reading an article about fisherman Frank Mundus's frightening encounter with a 4,500 pound great white off the shores of Long Island. Mundus would inspire the author to create the character of Quint that Robert Shaw famously played in the film. But unlike Quint, Mundus did not get turned into chum by the shark. Instead, he harpooned the beast and dragged it out of the sea. I mean, the poor shark. Like, sharks got such a raw deal after that movie. Like, people were terrified and they thought they were monsters and they were, like, hunted and killed. I guess a bit like how fucking idiots would kill stingrays after, you know, they they took out Steve Irwin. <laughs> I mean, it was only a matter of time for, that, for when that was going to happen, considering how he treated animals and bothered them so much. Anyway, he was taking big risks. But harping in a great white is just really shit so i just nah i disagree with that film i mean there's some horrible bits in it but yeah wait until i tell you the the actual like really horror story that actually happened fairly recently i think in australia where the north of australia is basically just one big horror show because it's just like every animal that can possibly kill you lives in north of australia so just i wouldn't move to that area if i I would go to south australia but if you like to live life on the edge knock yourself out so then we get to the amnitaville horror which was um released in 1979 i've never seen this film i've not even seen the remake but i'm really skeptical about it i know it's based on true events but i don't think the house is like haunted and I, I really don't trust the Warrens. I think they're absolute charlatans. But anyway, arguably the most famous horror film based on horrifying, allegedly real events, the Amityville Horror has spent more than four decades giving audiences a permanent case of night terrors with the story of a young couple in their house in Amityville, New York, haunted by violent spirits. Four years prior to the film's release, the real-life Lutz family claimed to have suffered a fate similar to that of their fictional counterpart. Upon moving into an Amityville home one year after Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered six of his family members there, the family reported that they experienced nearly a month's worth of strange sounds and even stranger sights that eventually sent them fleeing from their home. 
But the Lutz family took some serious creative license of their own in their report. In the years since, their claims have been debunked. No blackouts, ectoplasm or fell odours. Yeah, I'm really not surprised at that at all. I mean, everyone's going to big up like having a haunted house to get like the film rights. Especially no cloven hoof prints left behind in the snow. Seeing as how there was no snow on the ground on the day the Lutz family reported their paranormal activity. So they're an absolute bunch of lying bastards. But leave it to Hollywood not to let something like the truth get in the way of telling their version of it. My favourite stupid haunted like house movie and horror genre is actually just called House and it's the most ridiculous. I think it was in the video Nasty era but it, the effects are just so ridiculous. It's a bit like The Evil Dead but just it's just, I don't know, I think there's like monsters coming from another dimension through into this guy's house and it just gets more and more ridiculous. It's like so funny. It's it's so bad but it's good in a way, you know. And there's quite a few sequels of it. So then we get to Portergeist which was made in 1992. Now, we went over this on, like, curses, curse films or something, because the wee girl that was in Portergeist died, and, in fact, a couple of people who were in the film died in horrible ways. But anyway, if you want to listen more about that, go back and and look through our back catalogue for that one. Again, Steven Spielberg directed Portergeist. Oh, no, he didn't, sorry, I'll backtrack on that. He was the producer on it, and it was directed by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, director Toby Hooper. So in it, the Freeling family discovers their suburban home is built on a haunted burial ground, Indian burial ground, which is such a cliche, and is now plagued by its violent spirits. While this movie takes place in California, the haunting that supposedly inspired its story originated 3,000 miles away in New York State. In 1958, in the town of Seaford, the Herrmann family claimed to be victims of paranormal activities that would be immortalised in one of the most popular films of the 1980s. They allegedly saw bottle tops pop off on their own, along with those bottles seemingly moved by an invisible hand. It's not really that scary, is it? It's not like a clown tried to strangle you under your bed or a tree trying to... Like, throw you through a window, like in the movie. Their claims went viral and dominated local and national news cycles to the point where Life magazine did a piece on it. Like the Freelings, the Hermans also invited paranormal specialists into their suburban home to deal with what the supposed experts claimed to be a legit poltergeist. Poltergeist in German means noisy ghost. While these researchers were able to record some evidence of strange events, the occurrences stopped shortly after the team arrived. Hmm, convenient. Thankfully, whatever the Hermans think they say stayed around long enough to inspire one of the most chest-pounding experiences in movie history. Well, I've got a fact about poltergeist which is even more horrifying. So... And it may have contributed to the curse, like in real life, that people supposedly say happened attached to that movie. Is it the end scenes? Again, spoilers, but you know what? Fuck you. It was made in 1982, so it's fair game. So at the end of the movie, the house sort of sinks or it floods and they end up in like a muddy pool and all these skeletons pop up, which is like the burial grounds. So that's how they found out they, they, they built the new estate on there. Illegally, I think, or they didn't disclose it. And the skeletons in that scene are not fake. They are they used real skeletons, like actual, like, fuck. <laughs> I mean, I don't even think the actors knew that they were real. Imagine having to swim about in a, like, a horrible muddy pool with actual real skeletons. I don't know where they got them from, whether they like got them from medical maybe from a university or actual an actual cemetery somewhere 
But it's pretty mad that they used actual people's skeletons in that scene. I'm not surprised, but people think it's cursed. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Again, we covered this in our previous, one of our previous episodes, but it is still quite interesting. So a Nightmare on Elm Street director, Wes Craven, revealed to Vulture that the idea of teens being stalked in their sleep by Freddy Krueger, and Freddy Krueger was also, like, the name Krueger comes from uh, Wes Craven's high school bully, so he named all the, like, he named him after him. And there was also a guy called Krueger in The Last House on the Left. Is it The Last House on the Left? Yeah, I think it is. Um, Who's, like, this horrible, like, kind of psycho rapist, and he was called Krueger as well. So there's just some fun facts there for you. So he read an article in the LA Times about a Cambodian family whose young son struggled with awful, vivid night terrors. He told his parents that he was afraid that if he slept, the thing chasing him would get him. So he tried to stay awake for days at a time. Craven revealed in an oral history about this, his iconic film. Like most of the teams in Elm Street, this young boy sadly died in his sleep, likely the victim of sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome. <laughs> that should be a, a name for a metal band. <laughs> sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome or S-U-N-D-S. Rather than a girl wearing a glove with knives for fingers. Well actually I'm sure it was also to do with the, the real story about, I think it was Korean people, this is what I, I, I spoke about in the previous episode. There was Korean immigrants and they came over to America and a lot of them would have nightmares and then they actually would die in their sleep and and they were all really healthy and young so like what was going on there like I don't, I don't know it was a really strange thing and I think Wes Craven did hear about that and that also inspired him plus he's seen this homeless man that looked a bit like used to scare him as a kid and he wore a fedora and a stripy jumper so there's lots of inspirations um in real life but it's not really I don't really think it's a horror a horror story per se I mean is dying in your sleep a horrific thing I think it'd probably be quite quite a, a nice thing like at least you're not dying screaming in pain unless you're being murdered by a dream demon I suppose I mean who knows you ever get that feeling when you're like you feel like you're falling really suddenly and then you jolt awake apparently that's you like getting yanked back out of the afterlife or something it is really horrible I've had that several times more than several times actually I think it's quite common so here's one that I've never really heard of. It's called The Serpent in the Rainbow and it was released in 1988. So while it was not as popular or commercially successful as his first Nightmare on Elm Street film, Craven's... Oh, so it's a Wes Craven movie. Uh, currently, according to this article, it's an underrated movie called The Serpent in the Rainbow. <laughs> Sounds quite fun. Uses frightening real-life stories to tell its equally frightening fictional one. The 1988 film is based on the book of the same name by Harvard PhD Wade Davis. The book centres on the case of a man who had been a zombie for two years and was allegedly poisoned, buried alive and revived with a herbal brew. Dr Davis journeyed to Haiti in search of the drug used in zombification rituals. Craven's loose adaption of Davis's experience takes generous R-rated liberties, but it does remain faithful to the source material's chilling chronicle of humanity's universal fear of being buried alive. Now, I have heard of like certain places, I don't know whether it's Haiti or certain places in Africa, or even like the Middle East, where, or Indonesia maybe? Fuck it, I'm just, I mean, I'm just randomly naming continents now. Where they have this kind of powder, it's made some some sort of weird leaf and they, they crush it into a powder and they can blow it in your face and it renders you like hit, 
it's easy to hypnotise you or something. It turns you into a sort of zombie and you have no memory of what's going on. And then they can basically have you do things for them like become a slave for a while or it's a way of them robbing you because you have no memory of what's going on so they can easily like send you into a trance so they can just like absolutely strip you of everything you've got and then fuck off and then you wake up and you're like i've no idea what just happened there it's actually quite scary that's quite a horror show next one the silence of the lambs like i mentioned earlier with buffalo bill so this is the only horror film to win the best Oscar picture and it was released in 1991. Silence of the Lambs made Hannibal, the cannibal, Lecter a chilling household name. Is it weird of me that I find him quite like attractive? <laughs> Especially in the sequel in Hannibal, I actually quite fancied him. Maybe it's just because he's so learned and like sophisticated and you could maybe, like, I think it was the thing between him and Clarice was quite romantic. Like in the book... In the novel, he actually does, like, run off with Clarice and have a sexual relationship with her. Whereas in the, in the movie, they copped, they copped out of that, which really disappointed me, whereby she, like, basically cuts his hand off so that, like, she kind of lets him go, but at the same time, she doesn't go with him, which I found really disappointing. But anywho, it puts Thomas Harris' bestseller and the true crime, case, true crime cases that inspired it into the national spotlight. Ted Talley's Oscar-nominated script based on Harris's book, use an amalgam of several real-life FBI investigations to create serial killer Buffalo Bill. Ted Bundy, like Bill, faked injuries to beat his victims. Oh yeah, that's right, Buffalo Bill did do that in the movie. Like he had, I think he was in a van or something. Yeah, and that's how he got the girl in his van because he had like a, a cast and stuff and he was like, can you help me? Ted Bundy used to do that. But Ted Bundy was genuinely scary because he was quite a handsome guy so you would never think that he was like a psychopathic killer. So don't trust the good looking ones you know, because they could really like smack you over the head with a crowbar and put you into their uh, VW bug like Ted Bundy used to do. And he also used to pretend to be a policeman and stuff. Anyway, so they put that into the film with Buffalo Bill. And like Lecter, Bundy also aided in creating a criminal profile to help catch the prolific Green Liver Killer. I don't think any of the information that Bundy gave the FBI or the detectives really actually helped them find the Green River Killer. I think Ted Bundy would love to think that he's an expert like because he's so arrogant like he was arrogant enough to think he could defend himself in his own trial and get away with it but yeah no i don't think they actually caught the green river killer until well after bundy was executed so nah i wouldn't give him credit for that so as for bill's infamous torture pit in the bills of his home that aspect of agent clary starling's prey is tied to philadelphia serial killer gary heidnick who murdered and tortured six victims in his basement then we get to misery which was released in 1990 and based on a stephen king novel uh director rob reiner oh that's interesting he's a guy that did spinal tap i think so I hate this movie because I've got a, like the real horror for me is the hobbling scene when she basically doesn't want the offer to leave his house, her house, because she's like a super fan. And she wants him to like finish a series based on a character called Misery, which is why it's called that. And also because he's fucking miserable being stuck in her house, can't move. He was in a like a car accident. She saved him, brought him in. But when he got better, she was like, I'm going to hobble you. And she puts his legs in between his ankles, a wood block between his ankles and then gets a mallet and whacks the side of his legs, basically smashing them. 
and I just cannot watch that scene. That is absolutely horrific to me than any other like blood and gore thing is someone's legs getting smashed in with a hammer Ugh, and breaking her bones. No. Makes me feel sick, actual physically sick. It is in part based on King's real life experiences following the release of his fantasy novel The Eyes of the Dragon. The negative backlash he received from fans was so strong that King used it to fuel his return to horror fiction with the tale of popular author Paul Sheldon struggling to escape a crazed fan, Annie Wilkes. When Paul's car crashes during a snowstorm, Annie rescues him and then proceeds to confine him to a room in her home while torturing him emotionally and physically until he writes a new novel to satisfy her psychotic desires. The fanatical Wilkes and her violent ways stem from the inner demons that plagued her creator. In 2006, King told the Paris Review that Annie was a metaphor for the author's drug addiction. She was my number one fan. God, she never wanted to leave. Yeah, because Stephen King was like a total cokehead. Like, he did a lot of cocaine and he was a raging alcoholic. And even he admitted that, like, a lot of the novels he wrote, he couldn't even remember. And he also directed one of his own films, which was called Maximum Overdrive, which was about, I think it was about machines coming to life and trying to kill people. And he said that it was really, like, a really shit film, but he was, like, so, like, amped up on ripper magoos or like <laughs> like um Colombian marching powder that he honestly just says he can't remember half of what he was doing and that's why it was so shit but I think it's one of those films actually I've never seen it but it may be one of those films that's like so bad it's good again and then we come to Scream one of my least favorite horror films but I didn't realize it was part like it was it was inspired by a true story um again it's Wes Craven and this was released in 1996 and fueled a lot of prank calls. I'm, I'm guessing, like, because I used to go to like the local shop, um, shopping square where I lived in Green Hills in East Kilbride, and people. This is when we still had payphones in '96, and people would phone the payphone there, and I would like sometimes walk past it, and we'd pick it up, and it was someone pretending to be like Ghostface and try to be all scary and shit, <laughs> but we didn't take it seriously. We just hung up. I wonder where they were phoning from, though. They, they could have been phoning from a car nearby just to see our reactions. Wes Craven's meta-slasher film became a sleeper hit in the 1996 Christmas box office and a 90s staple as teenager Sidney Prescott, played by Neve Campbell, and her friends struggle to find the ghost-face killer before his knife finds them. The only things more unsettling about Scream's murder mystery plot are the murders that the filmmakers have said inspired it. For Scream's 20th anniversary in 2016, Complex did a riveting piece chronicling the horrific crimes in Florida that served as a foundation for the ones that transpired in the fictional town of Woodsboro. In August 1990, Danny Rowling would be christened the Gainesville Ripper after he, like Ghostface, used a knife to kill five students in Florida. He also, like, one of them was really weird because he, he killed this lassie and then he positioned them, like, in kind of sexual ways, like, with her legs spread open and I think one of them he cut he cut her head off and then I think he put the head face in the body. It was so weird, like f- fucking weird. But anyway, it's so, I mean, that's probably worse than what Ghostface does to people. And it was, they were all students. It was all on a, like a, a Florida campus and he camped outside in the woods. Anyway, screenwriter Kevin Williamson was house sitting in Los Angeles watching TV when a special about the Gainesville murders aired. According to Complex, Williamson said it freaked him out so bad that he imagined a knife-wielding killer stalking him outside the home he was a guest in. 
Those not sleeping tonight thoughts inspired Scream's iconic opening scene and paved the way for one of the most popular franchises in movie history. Next, we've got Ravenous, which is one of my favourite films. I love it with Robert Carlyle and Guy Pearce. And the, the soundtrack's awesome. Like, it's all like banjo music and a bluegrass banjo. So, a notorious box office failure when it first came out. I don't get that because I think it was awesome. Ravenous has since developed a small but fiercely loyal cult, including myself, following, thanks in part to this historical horror movie's real-life inspirations. Disturbing and Bloody barely covers Ravenous's take on the Colorado cannibal Alfred Packer, who in 1874 confessed to murdering and eating his fellow travellers as they struggled to traverse Colorado's San Juan Mountains during a deadly winter. I suppose it's like the Donner Party, didn't they? Like, resort to cannibalism because they got stuck in like their wagons in a really horrific wintry journey across our wherever the hell they were going but they got stuck and it was like i think they had dysentery and stuff or am i just thinking of there was like a computer game or something open water released in 2003 open water courted many shocking headlines and a mini controversy when it arrived in theatres in the wake of a based on real events marketing campaign the low-budget film, which featured a young couple stranded in an ocean teeming with sharks, again, sharks are getting a raw deal here, was famous for its use of real sharks to add ver- for similitude to its gritty home video aesthetic. The sharks used in the filming of Open Water were as real as those that threatened the film's source material. American tourists Tom and Eileen Lonergan, they were left behind on a scuba dive off the Great Barrier Reef. It took two days for the scuba company to realise that the Lonergans did not return and the couple, like their big screen counterparts, were never found. But nobody actually knew how they died. I mean, assuming they just drowned, but like the film made out that they got eaten by sharks and I don't think that's true. I don't think the sharks would have, like unless they were bleeding or something, I don't think the sharks would have been wanting to eat them. I think they probably just drowned. I mean, the horrible thing about that is actually just being left in complete deep bodies of water. To, like, it freaked me out. I have swam in the ocean, but I didn't go out that far. But yeah, I mean, the thought of being like, the ocean's so vast and so deep that being stuck there, you've just got no fucking chance. It'd have to be a miracle for like some dolphin or whale to maybe find you. But even then, it would like, <laughs> you'd be so far away from land. Like, what, whatever, like chance would you have like no it would just be horrible wolf creek released in 2005 wolf creek gave survival horror a strong boost with its ultraviolet take violent ultraviolet ultraviolet take on australian travelers being stalked and terrorized in the outback the popular horror flick from writer director greg mclean borrows from a series of gruesome crimes committed in his home country I've never seen this film. I've only ever seen a clip. Again, it's pretty horrific of some girl's finger getting clipped by this guy's... I think they were pliers or something. Oh, it's just horrible. I just don't like that kind of thing. The killer in the movie was based on true killer, two true killers in Australia, McLean told Starbust magazine. The true story element of it is where he began. He's a combination of Bradley Murdoch and Ivan Millat, 
So it's combined the elements of those two characters and then took a lot of the Australian archetypal characters and cultural mythology and wove those characters into a combination to come up with the character. Mila and Murdoch were found guilty for the deaths of various backpackers over the years. The Conjuring in 2013. Before he made Aquaman, director James Wan earned his bona fides with horror fans with this modern classic of the genre. The Warrens, just roll my eyes at that name, Married paranormal investigators played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Formiga are based on real people who claim to have encountered and battled real supernatural threats. Yeah, I don't believe a word of it. The actual Lorraine Warren was a consultant on the movie and insists that the haunting that plagues the terror-stricken family and their home in the film really happened. Ah, nah, don't think so. Whoever the spirit was, Warren told USA Today, she perceived herself to be mistress of the house and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position. Mm. Hounds of Love? Isn't that a song by Kate Bush? This disturbing and underrated horror film released in 2016 centres on a teenage girl struggling to escape her crazed captors, a couple in love with each other and the idea of getting away with homicide. That couple is inspired by a real-life one, the Burneys. In 1986, Catherine and David Burney, who stalked the suburbs of Perth, Australia, and committed what would be known as the Moorhouse Murders, named after the street on which Burney's home resided. They tortured and murdered at least four women in their house, often documenting their sadistic crimes. Catherine would go on to become Western Australia's most high-profile serial killer. And thus ends my little list. I'm sure there's plenty more movies that we can talk about in our next episode. But I just thought I would just, you know, give you this little bit of um, of an episode. Just a wee short one. Just to tide you over. I mean, you can go back and listen to all our, you know, our back catalogue of episodes. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate um, if you've, you still want to listen to our podcast. We haven't died. We haven't gone away. We will be back. Hopefully we'll get back to normal soon, Mark and I. And um, enjoy the new artwork. And I've also just set up some new music for the podcast. So made it a little bit shorter. And it's a little bit 80s funk. Hope you like it. Bye!